and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Jane Williams to discuss her work on quarantine. Jane has been on the podcast before. Jane's been working on the area of pandemic preparedness for a while, since at least 2018, and has a couple of papers under review on questions about quarantine and risk and COVID-19, the current pandemic. So welcome, Jane. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I think that this is a very timely conversation, Mm. and um, especially to be talking about quarantine when we in Sydney are currently under lockdown. So I guess I wondered if you could give me a little, give me and the listeners a kind of um, high level understanding of what the ethical issues are around quarantine. Mm. So it's kind of interesting, actually, because there's been quite a lot of work done pre-COVID about, I guess, the ethics of quarantine. But the interesting difference, at least in Australia, is that none of that was premised on you being locked in a hotel room for 14 days. (laughs) So what's in the literature and what we've been finding when we've been talking to people isn't necessarily the same thing. So I guess the ethics of quarantine are that you're severely restricting somebody's movement and that's for the good of the public rather than the good of the individual, right? So there's a decent amount that we that's in the literature about reciprocity. So ideally you need to be helping people to quarantine. So uh, I know that in Canada during SARS, there were quite a few people quarantined at home. Mm -hmm. I believe they were given assistance with various things, particularly around um, food, shelter, different shelter if they needed it, that just that sort of thing to make sure people could essentially discharge their um, the responsibilities to the public in as easy a way as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's been kind of the basis of talking about quarantine. So, you know, like with all of that least restrictive means stuff, don't do it unless you have to. Whether I, yeah, I don't really want to, <laughs> whether or not that's a good approach, but, you know, ideally it would be something of a last resort and that you would help people do it you would make it as easy as possible for them to I guess do the right thing to protect other people so is the main difference with the way that quarantine has been thought about previously and the way that Australia and maybe some other countries I'm not exactly sure but at least Australia is doing quarantine now is that the difference is that it's hotels versus homes yeah yeah okay So actually, although it was interesting because none of the previous literature, like the pre-COVID stuff, really talked about where it would be. So Mm. we're kind of, when I read it, I'm just, I'm kind of inferring what the reader thought. Essentially, I think people think that it's mostly going to be at home. It could be that it would be in sort of quarantine space. Obviously, there's a really long history um, in many countries of there being quarantine stations. Mm-hmm. Um, in Australia, particularly, we love a bit of quarantine in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Goes along with all of the sort of closed border and border protection stuff. So it's not like quarantine itself is new. It's not like quarantining somebody in a space that isn't their home is new 
But what we're doing in Australia now is new as far as I know. So as far as I can tell, Australia was the second country in the world to introduce um, compulsory hotel quarantine. I think Macau was doing it before us um, for travellers from mainland China. And I think, so the real difference is here anyway, is that you don't know where you're going and you don't really know what to expect mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, all of the the states and territories and individual hotels all have different rules. Mm-hmm. So when I say you don't know what to expect, it's not that you just don't know if you're getting a fancy room or a less fancy room. It's like, will you have any access to fresh air? You know, will you be able to um, get the kind of food that you want to get? You know, will you be able to get stuff delivered to the hotel if you know people in that city or whatever? Um, all of those things you just kind of figure out as you go along. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's quite a lot of uncertainty involved, um, and I'm not sure that that has previously been the case, partly because if you're at home, you've got a lot less uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So you sort of know what to expect and, and you know where your support systems are or aren't. And if you're in a quarantine station, that, that's a really highly regimented situation, right? So you don't have individual uh, hotel properties, you know, figuring out the best way for them to, to be able to manage the situation. So it's, it's really messy. Mm-hmm. And you've been, I have two sort of related questions for you. But the first one is, have you, you've been talking to people who were in quarantine? Yeah, we, so I've been working with Bridget Hare on this. She's at UNSW at the Kirby Institute. Um, We have spoken to 73 people. Wow. Okay. um, Who, so we did kind of, it was a, (laughs) when we started this study, we didn't know that we were going to be in lockdown when we were interviewing people. So it was a really, really interesting situation. We started this in March of last year uh, of 2020. So we, we got a little bit of funding and there was this point. So in Australia, hotel quarantine started on March 28th. And for, I want to say two weeks, or it might've been 10 days before that, people were actually allowed to quarantine at home. So the Australian government was saying to all Australians overseas, you need to come home. Obviously, that wasn't practical for <laughs> a lot of Australians living overseas who had like, you know, jobs and lives and kids in school and all of that. But for people who were um, on holiday or people who were kind of in slightly uncertain situations overseas or particularly people who were working for Australian organisations overseas, they tended to be the people who were coming home in March. Uh, so we spoke to 15 people who quarantined at home and 15 people who quarantined in hotels in March and early April. Then we did a second phase. All of this comes with, you know, getting a little bit of extra money, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We did an extra phase in talking to people who had quarantined in Melbourne in around the time when there was a really big uh, leak I guess, as they call it, um, from hotel quarantine into the population in Melbourne that that led to a very long lockdown in Melbourne. I believe it was like 112 days or something like that. 
Um, so we spoke to people who'd been in those hotels just because we were really interested to know if their experiences or what they saw or how it was administered differed from the people who we'd spoken to um, a few months earlier. And then we did a third phase of interviews, again, with a little bit more money. <laughs> and I'll give a shout out to a prize, which is the uh, CRE, um, Prevention Preparedness CRE that funds us, um, to do to talk to people um, who had to pay for hotel quarantine. So it was government funded until the end of July 2020, and now people have to pay uh Generally, again, changes from state to state and territory to territory, changes a little bit from hotel to hotel because some hotels do some upselling, mm. uh, but it's around $3,000 a person. So that was the study that we did. We tried to capture all of these different experiences. You know, it was really similar how but people relayed pretty similar experiences across the whole time, which was kind of depressing actually because they had to throw this program together so, so quickly um, at the end of March. Like they were, they were really making it up on the fly. And I have some sympathy for that. But then when we're getting people telling us the same stuff in like January 2021, it was like, oh, it's really depressing. <laughs> yeah, they had a lot of time to figure those things out. They really did. Hmm. And I think for a long time, people thought it was going to be a pretty temporary fix. Now mm. it doesn't feel like it's a temporary fix. It feels very much part of whatever this new normal is, at least mm. in Australia, certainly. Mm. Probably in New Zealand as well, I would say. Um, that yeah. kind of leads to the second question that I had for you, Jane. And I don't know. I don't know if we know this or if you know this or, you know, what the data is, but is hotel quarantine noticeably more effective than at-home quarantine for the purposes it's supposed to serve for sort of infection control? I think it probably is. Okay. Um, but I don't have I don't have data on that. It's so mm. hard to compare because there are some countries that do in-home quarantine, well, because countries do in-home quarantine differently. Some of them it's based on trust. Mm-hmm. Some of them particular, and a lot of them it's risk assessed as well. So if you come from a country with a fairly low COVID prevalence, then you might be able to quarantine at home. Whereas if you've come from, say, a hotspot, then you might not be allowed to quarantine at home. And also other countries might give you like monitoring bracelets. I know that, uh, I, I don't know about today, but a few months ago, <laughs> it's changes so often. In um, Singapore and Hong Kong, they were enabling that for particular, I guess I want to say particular kinds of travellers, you know, people they deemed low risk. Australia and New Zealand are, as far as I can tell, with the exception of the Australian-New Zealand bubble, the only countries that don't do any risk assessment. Mm. So here, and I'm, I will answer your actual question, but here, <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. It doesn't matter if you've had COVID already or anything like that. So I would argue it comes down a bit to a trust thing. I don't think that in Australia we do a, a great job of demonstrating uh, trust, I guess mutual trust between the population and the government and public health agencies, you know, and I'm talking about that and as a kind of mutual looping thing, not just a one-way thing. 
at the you know and we love to tell on people as well right (laughs) (laughs) one of us little mini police officers um at the beginning when you could quarantine at home there was just such a lack of trust in people doing the right thing and doing it properly Mm. and so that was shut down incredibly quickly I yeah I mean I do remember watching a thing on the news right where where these young people had the young people (laughs) (laughs) right back from like I don't know Bali or somewhere and they were being filmed by a news crew because they were coming back in this first wave of returning Australians and and this guy was like we're gonna have a big party at home tonight and his partner was like Jesus don't say that you're gonna go viral we're not allowed to do that you know (laughs) it was just such a such a uh, bummer of an example of the way things can go wrong and where things like that are really highlighted. So Mm -hmm. it led, like I'm not blaming the whole thing on that dude, but there are a few situations like that where it just kind of ruins it for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) So. I think that even though quarantining in hotel is not ideal because hotels are not built for quarantine, you know, they're not built for infection um, control. They are much more heavily supervised than anything you could do at home. Hmm. Including with the sort of ankle bracelets or. Yeah, because you, you can certainly monitor whether or not people leave their home. You can't necessarily Mm -hmm. monitor whether visitors come to the home. And so um there are certain ways of like I've heard other things where somebody will call you and you have to go outside with your smartphone and take a photo of yourself next to your letterbox so they can see that you're at the right number of house and you know there are all sorts of things that people can do to make sure that the individual isn't leaving Mm -hmm. but you can't necessarily um I mean it's complicated right like who do you live with? Mm-hmm. Does that mean mm-hmm. they need to quarantine as well? You know, if you go yeah. housemates, you need to go to work. It, it, so it's really messy. I think yeah. there's no doubt that doing it in a hotel is more effective, but I think there are some costs um, to that as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was going to ask you a probabilistic question, which isn't very fair. So <laughs> let me back away from that one. <laughs> So in terms of the kind of ethics of quarantine, what are some of the findings that you and Bridget are are discovering through your research? Um, Yeah, so there's a few things. Um, Very top level, um, there is quite a lot of risk to participants uh, of other health things uh, in hotel quarantine particularly mm. the people who we interviewed who were at Howard Springs, which is not a hotel, but that is a purpose. Well, it's not a purpose-built quarantine facility. It is an ex-mining camp, I think, very much built for um, single fly-in, fly-out workers. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of uh, accidents and so on that happened there that people recounted because they um, they weren't necessarily... Yeah, basically, if anybody had anything non-COVID related happen to them, then it wasn't great. You know, there was excellent, I think, medical support when it came to people with COVID symptoms. For other things, not so much at all. Like we we had one um, guy who was quarantined in a hotel in Brisbane, I want to say, who had gout and he was in a huge amount of pain and 
really, really struggled to get appropriate medical care. I had to really battle with hotel receptionists and police officers to be allowed to talk to a doctor. You know, they were like, what do you want to talk to one for? And he was like, because I'm sick. What with? Uh, you know. And he was, he was also feeling very angry about his situation. So he was like, I'm not going to tell you what is wrong with me because it's not your job. You know? I need a medical professional. Anyway, so we did find that a lot of people had other non-COVID related issues that were not well dealt with at all. Uh, and that really needs dealing with, particularly since in Australia they're talking about um, making purpose-built quarantine facilities not in cities. They need to be able Mm. to provide appropriate medical care. There were also some pretty significant mental health um, issues that quite a few people faced. Those weren't well dealt with. It may be improved now. Initially it was like, well-meaning people sort of volunteering for the Red Cross, um, trying to solve those sorts of problems, uh, not trained professionals, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also found that there, that there was a huge amount of uncertainty involved in the whole process and that really bothered people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mentioned before that nobody knows where they're going and one of the things that happens um, and this just is so crazy to me, but I guess there are reasons for it. I just don't know what they are. Um, is that you arrive in Australia, you arrive in the city, and then you get on a bus, and the bus driver won't tell you where you're going. So, if you, for argument's sake, let's just say we're flying into Sydney, we know Sydney, <laughs> we know <laughs> the hotels, we'd be, you know, don't know where we're going, don't know what to expect, and nobody will tell you where you're going until you pull up in front of the hotel. So many people told us this. It was like a guessing game, right? So they would be driving down the road and it's like, okay, we're heading into the city. So, you know, and they would be like, maybe it's this one, maybe it's that one. And people have been reading Facebook often for months before they come back and they are very aware of differences between different hotels, big differences in things like food hotels that have balconies, hotels that don't, and they're super, super anxious about these things, Um, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, probably why they don't tell people where they're going because if they say, oh, we're going to this one, they don't want people to, like, revolt or something (laughs) on the bus or I don't know. Um, So that was extremely difficult for people. There are other kinds of uncertainties. They won't give uh, negative COVID test results, which is um, not great. So there are all these compulsory COVID tests and then, People uh, just get told, don't worry about it. We'll just get in contact with you if you're positive. Oh, so sort of no news is good news sort of approach, which would be fine, except for that people don't know what's going to happen to them if they are positive. And people call you and knock on your door all the time for other reasons. So people found that to be incredibly difficult. Like every time the phone rang, they're like, oh, God, is this my COVID result? Am I positive? Or is this some well-meaning person calling from a volunteer agency to ask mm. if I'm okay? <laughs> mm. So that was, yeah, that sort of thing is really hard. Hearing about those kind of thing just makes me kind of reflect that it's, it's strange. People are, sub, people are subjected to a kind of hostile surveillance yeah. 
from the point of getting off the plane, like just not telling people where you're taking them seems like an act of hostile control that is really at that point, not necessary. They have no choice anyway. Yeah. Um, and I just find that that treatment of people is very, it it's presuming that they're always going to be doing something wrong. I think it comes back to what you were saying about trust and the lack of trust. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, we're seeing this in Sydney now, right? Um, mm-hmm. With just, with, you know, calling in the whoever, whatever, armed forces. Yes. Just assuming that that people are going to be doing the wrong thing and we need to catch them. Yeah. Um, that, that, I think, is a, a particular a particular cultural thing that Australia often defaults to. Um, and people people did react really poorly to that sort of thing, understandably, right? They, f- they did feel undervalued. So many of our participants said they, they felt like less than human or that they were being treated like animals or whatever. And, and that all stemmed from just never quite knowing what was going on. You know, some of them also thought that it was a deliberate tactic to kind of just keep them unstable. Mm. Uh, you know, if you don't quite know what's happening when, then you're going to be more, I guess, submissive or, or at least uh, more likely to comply with whatever you're asked to do. Um, whether or not that's the intention, I, I really can't say, but that was definitely the way it was felt. Mm. Um, and so this, I guess, in terms of the ethics, there's, there's a lot of talk about reciprocity when it comes to quarantine and the things that we sh- ought to be doing really to make the process as easy as possible for the people who are really not doing it for themselves. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. doing it to protect the public. Mm-hmm. And at first I was quite focused on the money thing, right? It's like really we're, we're asking people to pay this much money to do this thing that is for the, the greater good, if you like. Actually, we found people didn't mind there being a charge involved. They, they, um, it was relatively easy to pay it. You could, you know, you can pay it off in small installments if you don't have the money. You can apply for exemptions in certain circumstances and so on. So people felt, you know, they didn't love it, but they they understood it and they felt fairly well supported on that. For me, the the reciprocity bit that is really missing is the respect actually mm-hmm. and and the treating people well or treating people really acknowledging what it is that they're doing and and not treating them like they're you know potentially just trying to mess up the whole system mm-hmm. really people are very compliant and they're doing this because they know they're doing the right thing and they've they it's a necessary evil if you like and I think acknowledging that and really valuing it and and helping people to feel valued in and making what I think is a pretty big sacrifice um, for public health, I think is what's missing and what's really important. Yeah. Well, Jane, thanks so much for speaking to me about this research. I hope that it continues to go well. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. I hope they stop using hotels for quarantine. I do too. <laughs> I do too. I I hope that they start to adjust the rules once people become more vaccinated and the risk assessment that you were talking about. But I guess we'll have to see. Yeah. Yeah. We can just hope. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. Oh, thanks for speaking with me, Jane.
Um, Jane's research is still under review, but we'll be sure to update the links to this episode once some of her and Bridget's work has been published. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the She Research Podcast. You can find the transcript for this discussion linked in the episode's notes. SheePod is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever else you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.